1961, a Soviet cosmonaut completed the first manned space flight, and having gazed upon the Earth from far above it, he was quoted famously as saying, I flew into space, but I did not see God there. Seven years later, in 1968, on Christmas Eve, as we've just seen, three American astronauts gazing upon the very same Earth from the very same vantage point during what was at the time the most watched television broadcast of all time. They chose to read the first ten verses of Genesis 1 because when they flew into space, they saw overwhelming evidence of God there. Different people looking at the exact same creation, coming to the exact opposite conclusion. On the way to Caesarea Philippi with his disciples, Jesus, who was uh, making quite a name for himself because of the miracles he was performing, asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Mark 8, 27 through 29, and yet the Pharisees who also encountered Jesus' miracles said of him, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Matthew 12, 24, different people encountering the exact same Jesus coming to the exact opposite conclusion. Concerning biblical scripture, Mark Twain once said, the Bible has noble poetry in it and some good morals and a wealth of obscenity and upwards of a thousand lies. While philosopher, theologian, and New Testament scholar Vern Poitras said, when we come to the Bible and try to listen to its claims, we can easily misjudge those claims if we hear them only from within the framework of our own modern assumptions. Letting the Bible speak for itself, that is, letting it speak in its own terms, includes letting the Bible speak from within its own worldview rather than merely our own. Two great minds encountering the exact same Bible, coming to the exact opposite conclusion. There's no question about it. Believing in and following Jesus Christ is an act of faith. No matter how much evidence there is in front of you, even for those who encountered Jesus in the flesh, they still had to choose to believe. You see, it's not that there's a lack of evidence in this world to support the claims of the Bible. In point of fact, there is a surplus of evidence to support the claims of the Bible. There's scientific evidence. There's circumstantial evidence. There is historical evidence and archaeological evidence and eyewitness testimony that corroborates the claims of the Bible, which we'll be looking at for the next 10 weeks or so as we work our way through the creation story of Genesis up through the Great Flood. But listen... No matter how much evidence there is, you still have to choose whether or not to believe it. I can't force you to believe it, and God won't. He created every one of us with a free will. That's why there's sin and suffering in the world today, because he allows human beings to choose to believe what is right or what is wrong, what is good, or what is evil, what is truth or that which is a lie. And so he provides for us all of the evidence that we need to believe and also the freedom to choose whether or not to believe it. And to be sure, God desires all 
people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4, while at the same time knowing that not all people will make that choice. In fact, he even draws us by his spirit, John 6.44, and yet there are still many who resist the Holy Spirit, as Stephen pointed out in Acts 7.51. And so as we work our way through these first eight or nine chapters of Genesis together, we're going to examine some of the evidence that is available to us today in support of some of the most foundational claims of the Bible. But look, at the end of it all, you still have to choose. You still have to choose whether or not to believe it. You have to choose whether or not to accept it. You have to choose whether or not to trust your entire life and in fact your eternity to the truth that he has made available to every single human being on earth. And it is more than just an intellectual assent, by the way, to a series of ancient claims about God. You must accept that truth and allow it to completely transform you into a new creation, which is something that only God can do. And so the question for us is, what do you believe about God? Because we've already seen that different people can obviously witness the same evidence and come to very different conclusions. So what do you believe about God? Do you believe the claims that he makes about himself in his own word? Or do you believe the claims that are made about him by other people in popular culture today, even popular Christian culture? What do you believe about God? Do you believe in his word as it is written? Or do you believe that it is open for interpretation based on popular sentiment or even your own preferences and opinions about who you think God should be? What do you believe about God? It may seem like an unnecessary question to ask in a church full of professing Christians on a Sunday morning, but I would submit to you that there has never been a time in the American church when this question was as necessary as it is today. Biblical orthodoxy in the church is being replaced with moral relativism and postmodern spirituality and many doctrines of men. Perhaps this is the most important question that we should be asking outside and inside the church today. What do you believe about God? So we're going to spend the next several weeks exploring some of the evidence that exists in support of the claims about him in his own word. Whether or not you choose to accept what his word says about him and then allow that truth to utterly transform your life while uh, that is entirely up to you. So let's turn there together now to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to read the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Today will be a bit different than what we're used to because typically we work our way through an entire chapter or better in the Bible, for those of you who are regular attenders know, on Sunday mornings. But today we're going to focus on these four simple words. Because upon these four simple words stands or fails the balance of the Bible. Everything that we believe, everything that we hold to be true, Everything that our faith, our hope, our love, our lives are based upon as Christians, the entire canon of biblical scripture, it all hinges on these four words. In the beginning, God. 
Individually, these four words speak little, specifically to the validation of Scripture, but put together in this order, they form the very foundation upon which the entire Bible stands. In fact, many scholars consider Genesis 1-1 to be the single most important verse in all of the Bible. In the beginning, God. Listen, if that much isn't true, then the rest of what we read in this book comes at best into question and at worst is completely irrelevant. But how do we know whether or not this statement is true? The church is supposed to be the keeper and the harbinger of truth, but how can we possibly argue, let alone prove, that this profound claim is in fact true? In the beginning, God Because you understand, nowhere does the Bible actually attempt to prove the existence of an eternal God who dwells outside of and is sovereign over all of time. The fact is, the Bible doesn't lay out a series of arguments in order to prove God's existence. Rather, it assumes right from these first four words that God not only exists, but that he has always existed. So what do we do with that? As Christians, we're charged with defending our faith. 1 Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So we're told in the Bible to be prepared to defend our beliefs, and yet the Bible doesn't explain how God exists. It just says that he does. These ancient scriptures, they don't, they don't give us all of the science behind the creation story. It just says that he created it all. And so right from the beginning, the statement that everything else hangs on, the one statement that if we could prove could validate everything else in these 66 books that make up the Bible, and yet that one statement is written with the simple assumption that it is true without any further explanation. So let's get this straight. We're supposed to defend something that doesn't tell us how to defend it. That's right. And yet the evidence in defense of this scripture is not only all around us. It is, in fact, within us. You see, the first defense that we have that his word is true is our faith. First of all, we know that faith is an essential ingredient to our salvation. The Apostle Paul explains that we're we're saved by God's grace through our faith in Ephesians 2.8. And so when the Holy Spirit called you to repentance, if you're a believer and follower of Christ and you prayed a prayer of faith and then beyond that prayer you began following him, that was a very real act of faith and a very real interaction with a very real person, the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, the faith that you have embraced and expressed in your life is actually tangible evidence of the existence of God, certainly uh, certainly to you personally. And yet if the fruit of the Spirit is evident in your life as it should be, then your faith in Christ is also evidence to others that God does exist and is in fact active in his people. The moment that I yielded myself to God, when I submitted my life to Christ and invited his spirit to dwell inside of me, listen, I didn't need anyone to tell me that what the Bible said was true because the transforming power of God in my life was so real that I knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that he was who he said he was and that his words in this book were pure truth. Your faith 
is evidence. It's very real evidence for you personally that God is who he says he is. But look, it's more than that because I spent much of my own life believing in Jesus but not following Jesus. I believed his word was true, but I still didn't live my life according to it. And so again, once I finally submitted all of my life to him and actually began to follow him, even though my life was and of course still is full of imperfections, my life began to produce spiritual fruit that was undeniable to those around me. Why was it undeniable to those around me? Because when you follow Jesus Christ, he leads you into places and circumstances and relationships and challenges and situations that you would never in a thousand years choose for yourself when you're living for yourself. Believe me, people take notice. And then he shows you how to love people that no one else wants to love. He teaches you how to give out of your need instead of just giving out of plenty. He gives you a peace when by all rights you should be freaking out. He fills you with hope when everything seems hopeless. And he gives you strength and power and wisdom and insight and clarity in the most difficult circumstances of life. And listen, people take notice. right? Because it is tangible evidence that God is who he says he is. And so look, if there's no observable spiritual fruit in your life that makes people take notice of God's word being lived out in your life in front of them, then it may be time for you to ask yourself the question, what, what do I believe about God? Because your faith in him should be marked by undeniable, uh, the undeniable presence of spiritual fruit that comes with living your life by faith. And yet, for some unbelievers, that is still not enough. You understand, there are those who remain unconvinced even when they witness firsthand the spiritual fruit uh, in the lives of Christ followers. Right? Fortunately for them, there is more evidence available than just our faith. There are other compelling arguments to be made in defense of these four simple words, in the beginning, God. And yes, we're going to talk about uh, creation versus evolution in the weeks to come. But listen, we have to jump this hurdle first. Because if in the beginning God is not true, then we might as well pack up our Bibles and go home. Fortunately, there is more. There is much more. You see, in addition to our faith, there is our testimony. What we have personally experienced in coming to Christ can be very powerful evidence of the eternal existence of God to believers and unbelievers alike, particularly those who know us. In other words, personal testimonies tend to go much further with people who know us well and trust us, right? It's a part of the reason that we uh, share testimonies in church with our own family of faith. When I uh, share a testimony with you, you're probably more likely to believe what I'm saying because you know me and hopefully there's enough of a relationship there that you trust what I'm telling you to be true, to be something that has actually happened in my life. Whereas if a complete stranger were to share the same testimony with you, it may not always carry the same weight 
right? Because you don't know that person. You have no history with them. And yet again, when you hear a testimony from someone that you know is a reliable, trustworthy source, someone you have some history with, your faith is strengthened and it can further validate the statements that scripture makes. Statements like, in the beginning, God. Why? Because an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, meaning pre-existent, uncreated God could possibly, no one other than that could possibly accomplish all that he's accomplished in your life, right? Which strengthens the faith of the believer and opens the heart and the mind of the unbeliever to the truth claims of the Bible about who God is. Now, can you see how important it is that you share your faith and your testimony with other people. And yet, if you're not willing to do that on a consistent basis, then it may be time for you to ask yourself the question, what, what do I actually believe about God? Because as you experience the undeniable work of God in your life, things in your life that only God could do, you won't be able to wait to tell others about it. So don't ever discount the power and effectiveness of sharing your testimonies, these real-life stories about what God has done in your life and in the lives of others as a way of validating the claims that Scripture makes about God and who He is and what He does in the lives of His people. Right? Now, again, if you're talking to an atheist about creation versus evolution, for instance, they may not care one bit about your testimony, particularly if it's not a friend or fam family member, someone who knows you or trusts you. But listen, there are always people, there are always people in this world who are so close to accepting the truth of God's word. They read it and they want to believe what it says. And they want to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And all they really have left to hear is a testimony from a real person with first-hand experience of the power of God working in their own life. And that's all that it takes for that unbeliever to finally put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So don't ever write off the importance of your testimony because it may just be the difference in someone's life who simply needs to hear about God's word in action. Okay, our faith and our testimony combined then are powerful evidence that in the beginning God is true and yet the claim can be made certainly and is by others that those evidences are too subjective, too intrinsically tied to our own preconceived ideas or notions about God, which is why thankfully there also happens to be a copious amount of quantifiable, verifiable evidence, scientific evidence, archaeological evidence, historical evidence, circumstantial evidence, and eyewitness testimonies to support what the Bible says about God. Why? For those who remain unconvinced. And this, this is where we'll spend the remainder of our time today because it is important that we understand and can articulate some of the apologetic arguments that are available to us in support of the claims of the Bible. Okay? Uh, apologetics, by the way, is the discipline of defending religious doctrines through systematic arguments and it's important that we that we understand those arguments because there will always be people who need to see and hear and experience what the bible calls many convincing proofs 
All right, after Jesus was raised from the dead and came back to visit and further teach the disciples for 40 days before his ascension into heaven, there were those, even those close to him, who were still unconvinced that it was really Jesus. Some of them couldn't seem to accept, even after looking at him, that it really was him. And so in Acts 1-3, it says that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Some translations say after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. You see, some of, some of these folks wanted more than just the faith of others to believe that Jesus was in fact alive. They wanted more than just the testimony of others who had seen him. They wanted convincing proofs. Now, Look, uh, Jesus could have simply said, well, sorry, fellas, you'll just have to believe and maybe it'll come to you eventually. You know what? Just have faith. But that's not what he did. No, he took the time and he made the effort to present to those who were doubting many convincing proofs. It's true, he, he definitely did rebuke some of them for not having faith without seeing, but he also took the time and the effort to present convincing physical evidence that he was who he said he was because he knew that some of them would remain in disbelief until they saw the physical evidence proving otherwise. John 20, 24 through 29 says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. This is uh, after the resurrection, okay? Verse 25. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas's own personal faith was faltering. And even after others that knew uh, that he knew and presumably trusted shared their personal testimonies about seeing Jesus with Thomas, he still didn't believe. He had yet to be convinced. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. This is his first convincing proof to Thomas as Jesus either miraculously walks through the walls or the door or simply appears in the room and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. He was reading Thomas's mind. Another convincing proof. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord, my God. So only after the physical evidence was presented did Thomas believe. And Jesus said to him, have you believed? Because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Thomas gets an earful for not believing before. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus still takes the time and the effort to convince Thomas. And as we saw in Acts 1-3, obviously the others as well, with many convincing proofs. Now, obviously, we cannot produce physical evidence to definitively prove every single verse of the Bible. At some point along the way, there has to be faith to accept his word as truth, without question. However, once you've come to faith in Christ, uh, 
It is your job to defend that faith and speak the truth as we already saw in 1 Peter 3.15. And at times defending the faith means presenting many convincing proofs to those who have yet to believe. The good news is there are many convincing proofs available to us, which by the way, we should be well versed in. And so before we get into uh, the creation story over the next few weeks, let's talk about some convincing proofs that the Bible itself is trustworthy and true, which brings us back to the question, what do you believe about God? Because if you're not personally convinced that the Bible is the actual words of God expressed through his people, then you will never be able to defend it as we are commanded to, and you certainly won't be able to say with any real conviction that in the beginning, God is a true statement. So let's look at some of these convincing proofs. First of all, when you encounter someone who is arguing against the validity of Scripture, you will often hear the argument that using the Bible to support the Bible is circular reasoning, which is... Uh, the process of testing the validity of an idea or position by its own pronouncements. But look, using the Bible to prove what the Bible says is true is not, in fact, circular reasoning at all, not, not even close, because the Bible is not a singular autonomous work. You understand, the Bible is not one book written by one author. Now, of course, as Christians, we believe that God ultimately is the author, but the Bible is a collection of 66 very different individual books covering topics including religion, history, law, science, poetry, drama, biography, prophecy, right? And it was composed over one and a half millennia over 1,500 years span of time in three different languages across three different continents with 40 different authors, including those who were educated and some who were uneducated, kings and peasants, public officials and farmers, teachers and physicians writing from prisons, cities, palaces, dungeons, the wilderness, and at least one remote island all of them giving the same message that points to the same person, Jesus Christ. Do you have any idea, left to chance, how utterly inconceivable that is? The sheer odds of that happening without the oversight and direction of a single person over that entire span of time and all of those places and all of those events, someone like a sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present, pre-existent God, the sheer odds of that happening without someone like him being involved is at best illogical, and quite honestly, it is totally absurd. The undisputed truth is there is no other compilation of books in all of human history that even comes close to the breadth and depth of works that all fit together perfectly spanning throughout time as that of the Bible. Not even close. The chances of those 66 books being written and then coming together without divine intervention is actually impossible. 
proven by the fact that nothing even remotely close to it has ever been replicated before or since. And in that sense, the Bible stands alone, utterly unique in all of history. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says that all scripture is breathed out by God. That is to say that the scriptures hold the same authority as if God were to come down and speak to you directly. That's not just Old Testament uh, scripture, by the way. That's actually a very common and very popular argument that people try to make today when they say that during the New Testament times, the only scripture they had was the Old Testament. That's actually not correct at all. There are multiple passages in the New Testament where the authors cite other New Testament writings as scripture on par with the Old Testament. For example, the Apostle Peter cites Paul's writings as scripture in 2 Peter 3.15 and 16. The Apostle Paul cites Luke's writings as scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18. We just looked at a week or two ago at some of those passages in Hebrews as we went through that series. There are references in the New Testament to other New Testament writings as scripture. So it's not just the Old Testament that Paul is referring to when he says that all scripture is breathed out by God. He's actually saying that all of the scriptures are the true words of God given to men. Not simply the words of men written about God. You see the profound difference there. Let's move on to some other convincing proofs. In his uh, book, excellent book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. He says that if God created man with a desire to know him, he, uh, we would expect his message to have some unique properties. Number one, it would be widely distributed so man could attain it easily. Number two, it would be preserved through time without corruption. Number three, it would be completely accurate historically. Number four, it would not be prone to scientific error or false beliefs held by the people of that time. And number five, it would present true unified answers to the difficult questions of life. The truth is, the Bible stands alone as the only religious text that can claim it meets all of the above criteria, but don't take my word for it, okay? We'll take a few minutes here and look at each one of these items listed in McDowell's book briefly and some of the evidence that is available concerning each one of these points. And by the way, if you're interested, all of this information here is available in many different resources that evaluate the validity of biblical scripture, both Christian and non-Christian resources, which I can point you to later if you're interested. Uh, number one, it would be widely distributed so man could easily attain it. The Bible has no competition in this test. It is the single most published book in history with the widest distribution of any published work of all time. It has been translated into more languages than any other book. It is the most sold book in history. It was the first book published with movable type, and it is still today the number one bestseller of any book in all of history. If God were trying to let us know about himself and his plan for us, the Bible certainly qualifies, at least on this point, all other ancient writings fall dramatically, woefully short of the Bible in this aspect. Number two, it would be preserved through time without corruption because ancient writing surfaces were natural 
uh, in their origin. For instance, uh, papyrus, clay, animal skins that they use that could decay easily. And so uh, they didn't have an incredibly long shelf life. Therefore, we do not have any of the original documents, they're called autographs, that the biblical authors wrote. However, we do have copies of the originals called manuscripts and can compare them in order to discern what was in the originals and what wasn't. And the more copies you have from different places and the closer they are in age to the original makes the process more assured, of course, and the results more reliable. Uh, By the way, this isn't a process that is restricted to the Bible alone. In fact, every ancient document discovered receives this same treatment, being tested as to its reliability in the same way. So historians look for copies of the text from where they originated, their age and proximity to the autographs, the original writings, and whether or not the documents were quoted in other works to help them in determining the closest rendering of the text to its original form. So with all of that in mind, The Bible has an unbelievable amount of manuscript evidence to authenticate its message as it was originally written. The fact is, every other ancient literary or historical work, out of all of them, there isn't one of them. Not one of them comes even remotely close to the massive amount of manuscript evidence for the New Testament. There are over 5,600 biblical manuscripts or parts of manuscripts that we can examine today. And if you count all of the early copies of translations of the New Testament, the number is over 24,000. This is an astounding amount of ancient historical evidence. In fact, it's 43 times as much as the second most prevalent ancient writing, the Iliad, which has 643 early copies compared to the Bible's 24,000. Both the Iliad and the Bible were works venerated as sacred writings, viewed as having the answers to questions concerning the supernatural and the afterlife. Both fought attempts at additions, textual changes, and corruption. The Iliad has over 400 lines in doubt out of 15,600 lines. The New Testament, with 20,000 lines, has 40 lines in doubt none of which, by the way, substantially change its message. Furthermore, if we look at the time gap between the original writings and the earliest copies of these texts, again, you'll find no comparison whatsoever with the New Testament. The Iliad has a gap of about 500 years before the first manuscripts appear after the original writings. So the closest the closest copy of the Iliad that we have to the original is 500 years after it was written. The earliest manuscripts of the Bible, 29 years after the original composition. Because of the Qumran scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, other manuscript discoveries along with ancient Hebrew sources that quote from the Old Testament, we know that our version of the Old Testament is in the same form it was in Jesus' day. The Dead Sea Scrolls themselves in, uh, included almost all of the Old Testament canon and they date from 250 B.C. to 100 A.D. As well, uh, copies of the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament written about 250 B.C. shows the text that we have today as being nearly perfectly preserved. 
Okay, all of this is physical evidence to the historical validity of our scriptural texts. Number three, it would be completely accurate historically. If the Bible was truly written by God, then we must look at the facts of history and see whether the Bible reports those facts accurately, right? And there are, uh, there's an abundance of ancient historical writings available to us. Many uh, are written sources outside of the Bible. Many, in fact, non-Christian historians, ancient historians, unbelievers, who corroborate the Bible's documentation of historical events. Flavius Josephus, for instance, was a Jewish historian who lived in the first century AD. His writings have been historically verified by many other sources, and he not only preserves many traditions about uh, events that are mentioned in the Old Testament, but he also corroborates the existence of John the Baptist, where he writes that Herod had him imprisoned and put to death. He also mentions James, the brother of Jesus, along with his death by the high priest Annas, and he mentions Jesus himself, who he characterizes as a wise man. In fact, uh, in one of uh, Josephus' writings, he reports that people viewed Jesus as the Christ and that he appeared to his disciples three days after Pilate put him to death. <laughs> Josephus was a Jew, but not a follower of Christ. He stood nothing to gain by writing books that perfectly corroborated Scripture if it wasn't true. There are other early documents that authenticate biblical accounts. The Jewish Talmud mentions Jesus and records his death on the eve of the Passover. Thallus, a Samaritan historian who wrote in 52 AD, mentions the crucifixion, as did Phlegon, the Roman historian. We also have a letter sent by a Syrian man to his son, which was written sometime near the end of the first century or maybe the beginning of the second. The man's name was Marabar Serapon, and while he was serving a prison sentence, he wrote to encourage his son and to charge him to seek wisdom. This is what he said in his letter. What advantage did the Athenians gain from putting Socrates to death? Famine and plague came upon them as a judgment for their crime. What advantage did the men of Samos gain by burning Pythagoras? In a moment, their land was covered with sand. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that their kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three wise men. Note the reference to Jesus being put to death in a historical context. The letter also shows that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews and that he taught wisely. You see, there's an abundance of evidence as well, archaeological. Archaeology has borne out the reliability of the Bible. Everywhere archaeologists search, they consistently uncover evidence that supports, not refutes, supports the Bible as being a true account of history. Archaeological digs have uncovered a stella, a commemorative stone dedicated to Pontius Pilate and even found the remains of a crucified man with the nail still in the bones of his hand. Until modern times, the Hittites were a group of people considered to only be mythical because they were only mentioned in the Bible. It wasn't until A.J. Sace brought forth indisputable evidence of their existence in 1876 that the Hittites are now generally accepted as historically true. In fact, 
the archaeological evidence for the validity of the Bible is so overwhelming that over 25,000 sites mentioned in the Bible have been found. Miller Burroughs writes, the more we find that items in the picture of the past presented by the Bible, even though not directly attested, are compatible with what we know from archaeology, the stronger is our impression of general authenticity. He's talking about the Bible. Mere legend or fiction would inevitably betray itself by anachronisms and incongruities. Nelson Gluick, renowned Jewish archaeologist, said it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Archaeology consistently confirms biblical accounts. Number four, it would not be prone to scientific error or false beliefs held by the people at that time. Listen, if we're to believe that the Bible came from the same source that created the universe and the world, then it is logical to assume that it would not misrepresent the mechanics of the universe or of the world, right? And so it makes sense that only the Bible is devoid of the scientific absurdities that are found in all other ancient religious writings. In Hindu scriptures, it is taught that the earth is set atop the backs of four elephants who in turn stood on a giant sea turtle that was swimming through a milky sea. Yet Job states, he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. Job 26, 7. Isaiah says that it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Isaiah 40, 22. When Genesis was written, the Greeks were beginning to tell of Apollos' flight across the sky in a flaming chariot. The Egyptians were worshiping the sun as Ra, deifying it. The Mesopotamians referred to the sun as Shamash and called it the God of Justice. Genesis, however, refers to the sun as a light in the expanse of the heavens and views it as a thing created by God. The fact that the Bible does not follow the naivety of those ancient religions is actually often overlooked since modern man is, of course, much more knowledgeable in the mechanics of nature. So we, we take for granted that someone touching an infectious person, for instance, or a corpse should practice good hygiene and wash thoroughly in running water before proceeding to anything else. But this discovery... You realize it's only been a medical reality for about 150 years. And yet the book of Leviticus, though written hundreds of years ago, requires this very same procedure. You cannot find in the Bible ideas as far-fetched as bloodletting or consuming ram's horn for fertility or all the other mythical cures for ills that were thought to be science in those days and of course the bible is not a science book it does not focus on scientific facts about creation but where it does mention those things it is wholly accurate in its representation which is exactly what we'd expect if the bible had its origin in the one who created the universe and its scientific laws. Point number five, it would present true unified answers to the difficult questions of life. Again, uh, as a reminder, 
we're talking about a collection of different documents that were written over one and a half millennia devoted to discussing the most controversial and emotionally charged topics that man has ever known. And the truly incredible part is they all agree. Taken together, the Bible presents a single unified message of actions and attitudes by which man can live. I mean, that alone is an unprecedented accomplishment. To have 66 books written by 40 authors from completely different backgrounds and completely different cultures and completely different life experiences and completely different educations to be of the same mind about the same subjects over a 1,500-year period of time. It simply is not a human possibility in and of itself. Right? Editorial uh, writers in our newspapers today they can't even agree on a single subject, even though they come from the same culture and all educational backgrounds. So here's a quick analogy. I read this online to demonstrate the remarkability of the accomplishment of the Bible, what we're talking about here. Imagine a classroom of 40 students at the high school level. The teacher has decided on the class writing a novel for a class project. Each student will be assigned one chapter and they will then gather the papers together and assemble the finished work. The topic chosen is why God is important in man's life. But there's no outline and there are no rules as to what that statement means. Because the students are all the same age and live in the same area at the same point in time from the same culture with the same education, they have a tremendous advantage over the biblical writers. And yet to expect that these students would in the end produce a congruent work, all agreeing, all 40 chapters, all saying the same thing about the same person, about why God is important in man's life. 40 chapters, let alone 66 books that all agree with one another. To expect that out of that college classroom would be patently ridiculous. What would you end up with? It would be a total incoherent mess. The fact that the Bible is a unified message from so many authors over so much time and distance and culture and background is in and of itself an overwhelming evidence that its origin comes from far beyond man. And look, this is a, this is a broad overview here. We don't have time to go in depth today to even a sliver of the evidence to the validity of the Bible. There's so much more here. The, uh, the prophecies fulfilled by Jesus alone. It's staggering. The coming of the Jewish Messiah is the focus, of course, of the Old Testament. There are over 300 separate prophecies about the Holy One of Israel found there. They're so specific as to predict the city of Jesus' birth, Micah 2, his nature, Isaiah 7, 14, his works of healing and miracles, Isaiah 35, 5, and 6, his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, 12, and 13, 
His suffering, Isaiah 53. His style of execution, Psalm 22. And his resurrection, Psalm 1610, among many, many others. Do you understand? These prophecies were written anywhere from 400 to 1,000 years before Jesus' birth. Yet they describe his life with the accuracy of an eyewitness. The odds of a living person meeting even a handful of those predictions are so astronomical it is considered to be an impossibility apart from divine intervention. Look, I, I, I literally deleted about eight pages of historical and prophetic information from this sermon that we could go on and on and on and on today about, but we'd be here till four o'clock. We just don't have time. There's so much more evidence available to us. Just listen, the, the body of circumstantial evidence alone is overwhelming. The apostles and writers of the New Testament suffered and were executed, save one, because they would not recant their position that the teachings of the Bible, the gospel story, is true and accurate. If their testimony was made up for their own gain, which is what so many assert, Surely at least one of them would have renounced his stand to save his own neck, but it didn't happen. All of the apostles and writers of the New Testament believed unwaveringly in the face of death that the Bible was absolute fact. Honestly, why would you go to all that trouble and willingly accept torture and execution for something that you were making up? You just wouldn't do that. Maybe, maybe you could explain one or two of them losing their minds and ending up with a death wish, but all of them? No way. And yet not one of them recanted their faith in Christ and His Word. The circumstantial evidence for the validity of Scripture is overwhelming, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. The eyewitness evidence couldn't be any stronger. The Apostle John, for instance, claimed that Jesus was pre-existent. In other words, in the beginning, God. He wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1. 1, 1. Later in his gospel account, he quotes Jesus as saying, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. John 8.58, Abraham lived more than 2,000 years earlier Jesus was claiming to be transcendent over time as we know it, pre-existent, sovereign over time itself. And here's why it is so important that John was the one to make those claims and many others about Jesus. Because John wasn't simply someone who heard about Jesus and decided to believe and is now writing about what he heard from someone else so as to try and convince others to believe it as well. No, this is John, the beloved disciple, the one who's described in John 13, 23 as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the man who followed Jesus so faithfully that while dying on the cross, Jesus told John and no one else to look after Jesus' own mother. This is the man who was one of only three that Jesus took up on the mountain where he was transfigured before them so they could get a glimpse of his true glory. John knew Jesus like no one else and so if there was ever anyone who was qualified to introduce Jesus to the rest of the world, surely it was John. Now listen, my wife knows me better than anyone 
And so if an author decided to write a biography about my life, which I'm sure is going to happen any day now, <laughs> would he want to interview someone who had heard about me but never actually met me? Or would he want to interview my wife? Well, obviously, he would want to interview my wife because she's walked with me through life. She knows me and can testify firsthand to the man that I actually am more than anyone else. And I'm telling you that if you want to know who Jesus actually is, there's no better place to start than the firsthand accounts of his life, those who were with him in the flesh. And there's no more compelling than John because of all those who were with him, John knew him better than the others. And so as eyewitness accounts go, there's none more trustworthy or detailed, in fact, or insightful than John's firsthand account of Jesus's life, which means you'd better believe that I'm going to trust John's word about Jesus over the opinion of some guy who's never met him but has decided a couple thousand years later that he knows better than John who Jesus really is. Maybe a great teacher or a wise man or a model for good moral living but not the eternally existent miracle working son of God who himself said that scripture cannot be broken, John 10, 35. You know what that means? Jesus was saying every single word in Scripture is completely true and completely reliable. Yet we have these people who write a book and start a podcast and a blog and a website about who they think Jesus really is and thousands of people follow it as gospel rather than the writings of the man who was actually there. It's unbelievable to me. So after 16 centuries of biblical orthodoxy guiding the church of Jesus Christ, we're now deciding it's time for our doctrine and theology to change based on the social and political sensibilities of popular culture in the West. Are you kidding me? I'm sorry, but the evidence, the scientific evidence, the historical evidence, the archaeological evidence, the circumstantial evidence, and the eyewitness evidence, all of which we'll get into more in the weeks to come, it simply does not support anything other than what the Bible actually says. And what the Bible actually says is, in the beginning... God. The question for us today is, do you actually believe that? What do you believe about God? And if it is anything other than what the Bible says about him, then what is your source? Someone else's doctrine? Someone else's opinion? Someone else's writing? I don't know. Is it the prevailing popular thought in our culture today? A gut feeling? Honestly, what source of evidence is there in existence that supports claims about God contrary to those in the Bible that can even hold a candle to the evidence that the Bible is true? There isn't any. Because long before there were doubters, long before there were other philosophies and other religions, 
Long before anyone could decide that they knew better. Long before there were people who would try to refute the claims of the Bible. Do you understand? Long before all of those things, there was God. Let's pray.